Um, and with anti-Semitism, it's like, it's all, a, it's like one paradox after another. So it's like Jews are all powerful and they're weak. Jews control everything, but we need to control them. It's just all very, like all the tropes are like completely contradictory of themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this constant sort of gaslighting. <laughs> Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to episode four, season three of The Whole View. This week, we are diving into a heavy topic with two of my favorite Jewish experts. Jen is back on the show from Predominantly Paleo, and we're also welcoming your counterpart, Simone. And the two of you work together on Esther and Loretta and also wrote the Yiddish cookbook. And we're going to have all the links and everything in the show notes. But one of the reasons that we've kind of focused today, and I've asked you two to lead this conversation, is because as the most proud Jewish members of my community, I really want to help us all be better allies against the increased anti-Semitism that we're seeing in all of our communities lately. And I can't really do that because it's not my community. So thank you both so much for joining and being willing to lend your voices to this cause. It's our pleasure, honey. Yeah. Thanks for (laughs) having the conversation with us. I know it's difficult to connect to the podcast recording on your rotary phones. So um, (laughs) if we need to uh, switch to the modern technology in uh, Simone and Jen and we can say, See you later to Esther and Loretta. We can do that. Uh, (laughs) I love it. If you missed our last episode with Jen, season three, episode two, definitely check that out. Um, We're going to be exploring a different side today, obviously. But this topic is one that, you know, when I was researching, just the, the more that I kind of dove in, the harder it was for me because how vile and awful some of the research was. And just like it was essential to talk about Black Lives Matter, we're at a critical moment in history where anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's harming the well-being of our community. So it's it absolutely affects health. And we'll talk a little about some of that science in a bit. But before we face the awful harsh truth, um, I think we need to understand that that is necessary for us to advocate and fight for what is right. You know, one of the things that I'm a firm believer in is you can't really advocate for something um, fully if you don't know the harm that it could cause if you don't. And it definitely helps me stand up and be a louder voice um, and be more aware of my own actions and participation. Um, So I know we're going to jump into all of that, but before we do... Um, Jen and Simone, maybe each of you could give a little overview of your story and experiences specific to being Jewish in the world, um, but also just about yourselves in general, because you're humans. Um, That's just one aspect of who you are. I'm Jennifer. So I grew up actually with a Christian father and a Jewish mother. And by Jewish law, 
I'm Jewish, but my parents raised me in a multi-religious home because they felt strong to each of their historical ties, but also strong enough in their partnership with each other that they wanted to raise my sister and I with exposure to all of it. Um, so I grew up going to church. I grew up going to synagogue. Neither of my parents, I would say, was super devout, though my Jewish side, um, my grandparents grew up Orthodox. And my father's side was um, pretty stout Southern Baptist. So as you can imagine, they came from... Uh, kind of polarizing opposites in some ways, but the two of them in general were very open to the idea of, you know, teaching children about multiple religions and exposure to just being a good person in the world. And it's funny because I talked with my dad today and he still, he, he identifies more as a Presbyterian now, but he said, you know, I finally decided that I wanted to practice my own religion and show God what kind of person I could be by the good that I do in the world. And I was like, couldn't have said it better. So it really, for for either of them, was never about, um, you know, the, the words in a book um, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was more about how you're showing up, how you give charity, how you do unto others. And I think that's why um, it, it worked and why I can see myself in both of them, regardless of whatever faith I identify with. That makes sense to me. I remember coming over to your house a few years ago and there were stockings hung. And I was like, what's what's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, um, Hanukkah Harry is not a thing. So what's happening? Yeah, <laughs> we kind of incorporate some of the traditions that I grew up with. Um, because it, even though like my dad was or is Christian, it wasn't so much about um, anything specific to Jesus. Even at the holidays, it was more the, you know, the idea of us being together and the traditions that we set as a family. And so the stockings were always something that we really enjoyed growing up. And I extended that to my own family. Awesome. And Simone, could you, are you ready yes. now? Okay. Sure. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just needed the warm up from Jen. So <laughs> I, I grew up in a pretty completely Jewish, well, completely Jewish household, um, but very non-religious, sort of similarly to Jen's. Um, my Judaism was definitely more in the culture and the traditions and the history of it. My grandparents on my mother's side were both Holocaust survivors. Um, my father's family was already here um, before the Holocaust, and my mother's family was, you know, before they were before she existed, were in Poland. Um, and so most of my family did not make it. My grandparents met after the Holocaust in Sweden in like a refugee sort of situation. 
Um, and that's where my mom was born. And they came here when my mom was three. And so for them, they obviously went through literal hell. Um, and when they came here, they were very focused on sort of this, um, I don't even know, sort of like a paradox of keeping their Judaism close to heart and keeping the traditions alive and at the same time trying really, really hard to blend in because not blending in did not go very well for them in Europe. And that sort of obviously traumatized them. And they always felt like something like that could happen again. They saw it happen. Why wouldn't it happen again? So they were very, um, you know, tried very hard to be American, which is kind of funny because they never really seemed like, you know, they always had Yiddish accents and they never really, you know, totally blended in, which is what made them so wonderful. But, um, you know, they changed my mom's name when they got here to make her more American sounding. And um, that was sort of their focus. And even in that sort of passed down to my mom, she told me that they used she her little brother and her, they would like the games they used to play were usually like her hiding him in a laundry basket, just weird stuff that kids do. But it all sort of came from the trauma that was passed down. Um, so me growing up, I always had this awareness of what they had gone through. And I always felt like it was just completely unimaginable, of course, and also really just blown away by the fact that they were such loving, good people and Jews tend to sort of live around each other a lot, especially that uh, demographic of them. So in Brooklyn, they lived in a, Jew a very Jewish neighborhood. They went to the Catskills in the summer and then they moved to Florida. And so it was just very, they all sort of traveled together. So I grew up around a ton of Holocaust survivors. They all were Holocaust survivors. And so I met a really wide range of people and some of them were really bitter and angry, which is completely understandable. And, but some of them, like my grandparents were just so, you know, loving and generous and wonderful. And, um, it was just really interesting to me to see that difference. And I think it really just knowing what they went through, I think has a huge part in who I am and who I've always been. And that is one, um, I think that's why I feel really compelled to speak up for people who need speaking up for and working for making it a better place for marginalized communities in this world. And I'd like take it personally and I like feel it in my body when people are mistreated because of who they are. Um, and I also definitely feel the, I know you've talked on your podcast about epigenetics and generational trauma. And that is like, no joke, let me tell you. I have major fight or flight responses to things that I probably don't need to have a fight or flight response to. Um, and yeah, so that's really shaped who I am. And at the same time, I'm completely like not at all religious. Like I feel very Jewish and I'm also very just atheist. And most of my family is too, or agnostic. No one's really religious in a God sense. We're all just more about doing things that feel like what good people should do and carrying on their traditions and appreciating where we came from and, you know, keeping the stories alive of the ancestors. And that's really what 
the Judaism is for us. I love that um, definition of it. And I think that it's helpful for our listeners to understand because um, it is a religion, but it's also um, at least during the height of anti-Semitism classified as a race. And so maybe I can give a little bit of um, some of that perspective and data and science. We know that, for example, Simona, as you mentioned, being um, Ashkenazi Jew can show up in your DNA itself versus like a religious choice. And that means that there can be prejudice simply against the way one looks without even knowing what someone's religion might be. So I think it's important to kind of understand that anti-Semitism comes from both of those angles. Um, so I'm going to read some scientific stuff and then we'll dive into more of the, you know, how to identify and also what we can do because we like to, as, as heavy and, um, awful as all of this is, we do like to give kind of takeaways and actions that people can feel empowered to help. And we we will do our best to uh, do that for you. But first and foremost, anti-Semitism relies on the false idea that certain physical and intellectual differences exist between groups and that these differences are biological, permanent, and irreversible because it is believed falsely that these differences between so-called races were justified by modern science, which we'll talk about in a second, anti-Semites were convinced that science also justified discrimination against Jews. And I'll put a link to all of the scientific references in the show notes. This next one is from NIH's National Library of Medicine directly, and I felt uh, summed up a lot of what I had been reading most helpful for me. Um, so it says, scientific theories and arguments were used to support the inferiority of other races, thereby legitimizing crimes committed throughout history and all over the world. They were used in the United States to justify slavery and the Indian Wars, as well as later for the sterilization of disabled people. The emergence of eugenics as an applied science culminated in the horrendous atrocities committed by the Nazis during the Third Reich. Society was to be cleaned of all alien contamination, hence the German phrase Rassenhygiene, meaning racial hygiene. Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and people with hereditary diseases were deprived of their human rights, herded into concentration camps, used for scientific experimentation, and murdered. And the scientists who provided the scientific backing were respected university professors or researchers. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to pause for a second because I think that's, um, that's a lot to swallow. And we talk a lot about science on the show. And we like to think of science as neutral. We like to think of science as facts. And I think it's important to understand that people can twist information of all sorts. And certainly we can see from the history and the data that scientists used false information to commit horrific crimes and acts. So um, I think one of the reasons that I, I wanted to talk about this today is because I think of this as being like 
or I used to think of this, especially when we grew up and reading Anne Frank, it feels so far away. But, you know, in the 1920s was 100 years ago. And that's really like one, two generations that still remember it. And I think Simone, your story speaks to that in how just the epigenetics of your grandmother is still in you. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's important that we all remember it wasn't that long ago and we see upticks and spikes um, as we are right now. And it's important for all of us to call that out and to be allies to those marginalized groups so that hopefully it never happens again. Um, Scientific American did a fantastic piece on how anti-Semitism hindered science in general, which I think is interesting as they noted that Einstein's work in particular was what they called the Jewish spirit. So if we're continuing this conversation on science, understanding that the period of the Holocaust also uh, not just used science against um, these classes of people, but also hindered science in general by um, not accepting some of the works of of very famous people. And then... um, there was an American Scientist article, um, that's not like a person, that's a, a dot .org, noted um, just in January of 2020, which I'll note has only gotten worse since then for reasons we've discussed numerous times on the podcast and, you know, we'll go into more, that there is a dangerous resurgence in race science. And um, from that perspective, there is um, this idea that by elevating, we're creating um, differences, whether we think we're, we're saying kind things or not. And I think that was really eye-opening for me. So I want to I wanna read this quote. And um, I know Simone and Jen, you guys definitely want to hear your, your thoughts um, as I kind of wrap up some of the data and science on this. But it said, Jews have... This was a, a quote from um, a reference that they were using and um, saying that it is dangerous. So I'm going to start out and don't, don't think that this is the positive thing that I'm quoting. Um, Jews have highly developed intelligence in part because it was necessary survival strategy in the face of centuries of oppression. With Jews of various backgrounds targeted by a variety of hate crimes and the violence of those acts increasing, a column about Jewish Jewish genius would seem to be an affirmation of Jewish worth and value to society. Perhaps that was the intention behind the column, to provide frightened Jews with a weird silver lining to the surge in anti-Semitism they are witnessing. It'll make you smarter, while also suggesting to non-Jews that anti-Semitism is wrong because countries benefit from their Jewish geniuses. If anything, what it really does is serves to reinforce a variety of anti-Semitic tropes that portray Jews as cunning tricksters, using their intelligence to manipulate the media, accrue wealth, or exert outsized political influence. So we have all this content, and what I will say is there is countless sources of the mental health effects of anti-Semitism, including but not limited to the Holocaust and its effects, as well as the effects on descendants, as Simone mentioned, the epigenetics that we went deep into for episode 499 covers that, um, in, in part, obviously not completely. And this can be noted as one of the deepest forms of trauma. So I've noted many times on the show that 
uh, how trauma affects our health, both mental and physical. Um, so it's, it's just important to understand that there is extensive data on this. There's a 1952 report by the Consultative Council of Jewish Organizations to UNESCO that concluded that anti-Semitism caused among pre-adult victims humiliation, anxiety, violence, persecution beliefs. Um, and then in 2010, there was a survey of Jewish students in California, and they were found to feel physically unsafe, emotionally and intellectually harassed and intimidated by peers and professors isolated from their fellow students and unfairly treated by faculty and administrators. Their concerns are not felt to be taken as seriously as those other minorities, and 80% of all respondents expressed the belief that events, exhibits, and campaigns that demonize Israel could incite violence against Jewish students on their campus, while several reported that it already had. So again, you know, we think of the Holocaust as being so long ago, here we are, a 1952 report, and then again, 2010, we're still experiencing um, these ver very uh, effective atrocities. And that is why the APA has called for continued anti-Semitic violence in the U.S. to stop as late as 2021, where we saw a extreme spike. And their quote was, hate crimes, including those derived from anti-Semitism, can have dangerous physical, psychological, and societal consequences. 40% of U.S. Jewish people experienced anti-Semitism this past year, and 63% experienced it in the past five years. Psychological research shows that hate crimes create fear, anxiety, and insecurity among victims and others in the community, leaving them feeling vulnerable, angry, and depressed. These acts make people feel unsafe in their homes, their communities, and their place of worship. Research demonstrates that acts of discrimination affect the immune system of victims and those who witness hateful acts, and the effects of hate crimes change attitudes and behaviors at a societal level for years. Psychological science even shows that these vile acts create long-lasting damage for perpetrators by desensitizing them to violence. Hello, Better Beauty friends. I'm Jazz Hands excited to share that my favorite non-toxic beauty brand is offering 30% off this month, April 2022. They have never offered this before, so let me explain. I partner with Beauty Counter to help get safer products into the hands of everyone through legislative change. But admittedly, I'm not just in it for the mission. I've become a product junkie, and I love their skincare, body, makeup, and even sunscreen safer products. Even more, I love that they test every single batch against 23 different human health endpoints to ensure performance and safety. No contaminants, carcinogens, or unsafe heavy metals. No benzene and sunscreen, no PFAS and makeup, only nourishing skin superfoods to help you love the skin you're in. Don't believe me? How about a free sample? Email Stacy at realeverything.com and tell me what your skincare goals are. I'd love to help you switch to safer or give it a try. With their 60-day no questions asked return policy, what do you have to lose? Shop beautycounter.com slash Toth, just like any other website and enter clean for all 30 when using an email that's never purchased before for 30% off your order. 
Just don't buy any bundles or sets because the coupon doesn't apply, so you'll get a much better deal with the code. Some of my favorites, Countertime Age Defense Skincare, that is as effective as retinol without the dangers, Counter Sun Sunscreen, and all the makeup products. Some of my favorites, Countertime Age Defense Skincare, that is as effective as retinol without the dangers, all the makeup, especially the Think Big Mascara, and the family uses the shampoo, conditioner, and body wash daily. Our teens love the charcoal products. Plus, if you add the Perks program, Band of Beauty, no, it's not Columbia House, it's like Prime for better beauty, you'll get two free gifts as well, the charcoal facial mask and overnight resurfacing peel, plus another 10% back as product credit. That's 40% savings. For your real friends, I want to hook you up too. I know abandoning products that you've used for years can be scary and switching to safer can be expensive. Let me take the fear out and help you. Plus, when you shop with me, Stacey Toth, you're supporting a small woman-owned business and a certified B Corp, ensuring transparency for doing good by people and the planet. Email Stacy at realeverything.com for a free consult. And don't forget, you can shop at beautycounter.com slash Stacey Toth and choose me, Stacey Toth, at checkout to use code CLEANFORALL30 for 30% off your order. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, how our family gets quality meat on the table without having to venture to the farm. Customize your own box or go with one of theirs. Either way, you get exactly what you want, plus with our code, free ground beef for life. I am not a planner. With ADD, I'm lucky to remember to make dinner before Stacy reminds me. I love the convenience of heading to my freezer and having ButcherBox protein waiting for me versus running to the store. As someone who is a vegetarian for seven years, I love that ButcherBox uses humane and sustainably raised meat, shipped for free, frozen right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. I love supporting B Corps, which they are. I love that we're able to adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping. Stacy takes care of the ordering online, pausing when we are away, or adding roasts or shoulders as needed for holidays. When it arrives, it's like a magical present. We get a science experiment out of it, too, because we love playing with the dry ice. ButcherBox sources meat and seafood from partners with the highest standards for quality. You can be assured that the beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. This is your chance to never have to shop for ground beef again. That's right. ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash whole view and get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com slash whole view. Claim this deal. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to be quiet for a minute because I know that that's a lot, but I think it's important to kind of lay the groundwork because This is not just some nebulous I feel. This is documented extensively for a very long period of time on the harm that it has caused. And so I think maybe um, where we can go from this is to um, talk, Simone and Jen, if you can um, help us understand how discrimination, hate, judgments, assumptions in general play into your everyday lives and maybe share more about the differences between what is anti-Judaism, um, which is the underpinnings of where anti-Semitism came from and how 
maybe one led to the other in your own experience? Are you going to fight over who goes first now? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to go, honey? Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, thanks for laying all that groundwork. It's so it's really a rabbit hole is the thing. And I know, I think you called us experts. And I just want to say that, like, thank you. And also, not really, like we, we are Jewish people. So we've lived this experience. But to be an I don't even know if anyone there are educators on this topic. It's yeah, so hard totally to be an fair. expert on this because we can't, I mean, we can't even really agree on what, like when you look up the definition of anti-Semitism, you don't get one thing. So I think that's the first tricky part is that with other types of racism, it's based on the false, you know, belief and the terrible belief that one group of people is superior to another group of people. And that's terrible, but it's easier to identify. Like we, we know it when we see it. Right. Um, and with anti-Semitism, it's like, it's all, it's like one paradox after another. So it's like Jews are all powerful and they're weak. Jews control everything, but we need to control them. It's just all very, like all the tropes are like completely contradictory of themselves Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this constant sort of gaslighting <laughs> where it's like it's really hard to sort of keep track of it. And I think the the dangerous thing about anti-Semitism is that it can be hard to identify and it's woven into the fabric of society in a way that can be really subtle that you might not notice um, and it's we see it a lot. We started to see it a lot um at the start of COVID, where conspiracy theories started coming out of the woodwork. And almost every conspiracy theory, when you start to break them down, the the villains in the conspiracy theory are often Jewish. And there's this weird, like, commonality where it's like, we are somehow, you know, holding the, the, the marionette strings um, of the world when we're 2% of the population. Um, and somehow we're controlling the media and all of it. Um, and that's always, it always sort of comes back to that. And I feel like we know how to identify like the actual Nazis, right? If someone's waving a Nazi flag, if someone's chanting Jews will not replace us with, uh, you know, a tiki torch, it's like, okay, that's obvious. We know how to see that. But I think otherwise well-meaning people who have you know, a healthy mistrust of the powers that be fall into these sort of conspiracy theories and perpetuate them and then don't even realize that what they're doing is being anti-Semitic. So it's a lot more, it can be a lot more subtle, but it's really sort of, it's still very harmful. Um, And it leads to, it's sort of like a slippery slope of, you know, if you start to believe that, then it can really turn into actual, um, you know, hatred and intolerance. And Jen, I think you wanted to say something about, we were talking earlier about um, anti-Judaism versus anti-Semitism. And I know you had something about that. Yeah. I mean, anti-Judaism, I, I 
perceive and based on what I've seen is more, you know, about the faith itself, whereas anti-Semitism is against the people, the appearance, the mm -hmm. quote race. It kind of embodies anything about Jewishness that people don't like. And so anti-Semitism, which it can be a, more insidious and sneakier than other like very um, blatant forms of racism because there, and this is a discussion that Simone and I have had quite frequently, uh, you know, Jews can be very white passing in society. So you, you can pass a handful of Jews on the street and not necessarily know, or you can pass a handful of Jews on the street and absolutely know based on, you know, if they wear a talus or a yarmulke on their head or have a specific haircut in the more religious sects of Jews. But because we can um, assimilate so well, it it makes anti-Semitism even sneakier in the ways that it can pass by. So, and sometimes I feel like uh, I've had people say to me as if they cared for me, right? So they would say, I'm going to pray for you because I'm sad that you're going to hell. So in that sense, that could be more of it like an anti-Judaism thing because they really believe based on their Christian education that if someone does not believe like them, they're going to hell and maybe they truly just pity me because that is what their belief system is. That is what is educated to them versus judgments that are made against Jews as a people. And those are the tropes that Simone mentioned. So, you know, we control Hollywood, we control the media, we control the banking system, we have all the money, we have all the power, but yet we are beneath the rest of society. We are the lowest class. And that's why, you know, Nazi cartoonists would actually draw us with um, horns and tails and turn us into actual like creatures, like animals, like we're, we're rats, we're snakes, we um, were the lowest of the low when it comes to the animal kingdom, so to speak. So I think that's why it can sneak in so easily and have people not even realize that some of the beliefs they hold on to are specifically against the Jewish people. Um, and I know that this was one thing that we wanted to bring up, which is very complicated and we will not at all go into the history of, but one thing, um, you know, with the conflict in the Middle East, when you start seeing how the media depicts Palestine versus Israel, it's very interesting from a Jewish perspective because, and again, there is not one Jewish perspective on this, but the 
the Jewish educators that I follow do all believe in this way. Um, but when you when you try to whittle down this, you know, decades long conflict and try to make it equivocal with like the the American racism issue, it is not the same. It is not white Israel and black or brown Palestine. You have two groups of very oppressed people historically. There are two groups of victims. There are two groups of people who are, you know, fighting for sovereigns and independence. And what happens in the media often is that they choose one underdog because that's easier. It's easier to have, you know, the the good people and the bad people. And we're not talking about um, obvious criminal acts that happen by terrorist organizations overseas or by the Israeli government that abuses its power in certain situations. We're talking about the people of Israel and the people of Palestine. But how the media will depict this is by choosing one underdog. And so they might choose Palestinians, which then inadvertently will cause a rise in anti-Semitism against Jewish people, whether it be stateside or overseas or in Israel, it doesn't matter. So when you, when you depict a very complicated and deeply historical situation and water it down to an American experience of black versus white, or even just water it down in general to good versus bad, it makes it really difficult to see the the trouble that ensues after that. And the trouble is, if you depict Jews as bad or Israelis as bad, then there will be an uptick in anti-Semitic hate crimes. And that is exactly what we saw. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I know you didn't mean this, but I don't think anyone ever thinks that, you know, white versus black is simple either. And I think that's, that's the nuance and the complexity of this is there is a very long history of trauma and of hardships and crimes against all of the references that you made. And as an American experience, I can't presume to be educated even a little bit on the nuances of that. But what I do know is, you know, if I compare, for example, what is happening in Ukraine and with Russia right now, I am friends with Russians and Ukrainians who do not want to fight one another, who feel very Mm -hmm. strongly about being a community and it being out of their control that a decision is made at a government level in terms of what it's happening. And so I can't presume to know that because I'm not, I don't have experience with that culture, that history being there, anything. But what I can try to remind myself of is that these are real complex human people with feelings and with history. And um, I can support them individually versus demonizing, like you're saying, one side versus the other. And I do think that that is, whether it's just American or human, right, like it is in our nature to choose a side, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. I think it takes practice to remind yourself, like, 
I'm not I'm, I'm not part of this. I don't need to choose a side. The side that I choose is the people. The people are being harmed. I choose I, I choose humanity. Um, right. And that's... I choose safety for yes, humans. Yes, I exactly. Choose their, I choose their wellness and their safety, and it doesn't matter where they reside. And um, and I, I, the people that I'm following, which I think we'll have a list of some of those influencers and educators, but they very much want, whether they're Palestinian or... Um, Israeli or Jewish and not Israeli, they all advocate peace. And so, you know, that's, that's the troubling part is that here are all these people on, you know, either, either side, either location who are advocating peace, but yet the way that certain things are depicted then creates the opposite of that. And it's, it's harmful. So, you know, identifying that um, especially when it's a group that we might not belong to, it's important to, I think, connect with people who are Jewish, um, even if they're not Israeli or, you know, connect with someone who can give you that perspective from that lived experience versus, um, trying to just land on uh, some notion that really is kind of arbitrary. I just wanted to add that in this context, since we're talking about identifying anti-Semitism, um, the reason we're bringing up the Israeli-Palestine conflict is that it, it often comes from, like the people often use anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, it's like hard to put this all into words, so bear with me, but um, having some criticism of the Israeli government is not necessarily anti-Semitic, but often right. it goes into that and people compare the, like whenever Jews are like, you know, please stop killing us. And people are like, well, what about Palestine? When that gets brought up as like a whataboutism, um, it's completely deflecting from the fact that Jews are going through something as well. And like you said, there are two groups of victims over there. Um, most of them want peace. And there are powers that be on both sides that do not have the best intentions. Um, but to put Zionism in the same category as racism and Islamophobia and transphobia and anti-Semitism and colonialism is just demonizing Jews, basically, mm -hmm. again. So I think that's what's important to, I think that's one of the most like nuanced and tricky and kind of honestly gross places we see anti-Semitism um, cause it's, cause most of us are like, yeah, we want Palestinians to live in peace as well. We're not, mm -hmm. th that's not what this is. So it's just, that's a really tricky one. And I think learning more about how to identify that and how to shut it down is really important, which again, in the, we have a list of really, I think, helpful resources for people to dive more into that. Yeah. I know for myself personally, I was certainly not educated at all on any of that until the last couple of months. 
even now I would say that I'm not educated on it. Um, I think I want to learn more and I appreciate you both being willing and vulnerable to come on to talk about it because you're totally right, Simone. Um, being Jewish does not make one an expert and, um, but it does allow you to talk about your experiences and that means a lot to the people who are trying to learn, who maybe don't have um, Jewish friends in their lives who are willing to share or even at all to truly understand the experience. So I think one of the biggest things that, you know, I'd love for people to take away is how very broad anti-Semitism is in terms of the tropes and the marginalization and assumptions or judgment of the Jewish community, but not just the Jewish community. We've talked about like anti-Judaism is different than anti-Semitism. And I think it's important to be able to understand that um, this is not just about religion. This is about a group of people who are being traumatized generation after generation by misheld beliefs and it causes harm to health. So um, I know Passover is this week and I would not presume to know anything about um, Jewish history and tradition. And I'm curious if um, maybe we can talk about a little bit about that and some of the positive connotations that are helpful, I know, for me to start and build and learn so that we can refer to that in a way of I, when we're identifying anti-Semitism to redirect a conversation. Some Sometimes that's the easiest way for me is to, when we hear something negative, like basically respond in a, well, I don't know, I think this, you know, and kind of seeing things more positively. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Yes, Passover is coming up. Um, and what's interesting about Passover, whether you're religious or not, a lot of us, um, including Simone as a non-religious Jew and me as more of a spiritual Jew myself, um, we have Passover seders, which is like the dinner around um and there's there are prayers read and different things, but it it basically talks about us surviving. You know, like there's a joke about how like they tried to kill us, we survived. Let's eat, and um, which I guess sums up a lot of Jewish holidays and maybe our lives in general. Um, there's always a feast <laughs> at the end of every event because that is how we cope, um, with our victimhood. No, but, um, so Passover is a big one, um, in the sense that it talks about our survivorship. It talks about our ability to come out of tragedy of being, um, held captive, um, of being enslaved. And so, but I do think that it's interesting that even when we are not necessarily observant Jews or religious Jews, um, having a Passover Seder is an opportunity to gather with family and friends 
and build community and sort of rejoice in the um, the liberation of Jews and our strength and um, the the beautiful things about our culture and our history that we so desperately try to keep alive because like Simone said, we only make up 2% of the population. We're, we're, we're very tiny in number and, um, and with people who do try to assimilate to the point where their Jewish history becomes invisible, um, you know, that, that percentage fades away even more, which is why I feel like Simone and I both, that we really want to hold on to that history and hold on to the strength and the persistence and um, the, the beautiful parts of our culture and move those forward and so that they don't completely fade away in time. Um, so for me, that's Passover, is joining in with other Jews in the community, my family's going to go to the JCC and participate in a Passover Seder there. So it'll be a larger group than just our family, but we kind of need that community spirit right now. And I think, you know, a lot of that has been difficult with um, COVID over the past two years anyway, but having moved to Tampa, it's really nice for us to be among a Jewish community again, because we haven't always had that as a military family. And so um, it's this is a holiday that we can gather, that we can um, rejoice in our culture and our history and our past and um, really reflect upon our perseverance and our strength. I wonder if there is a way to define being Jewish. I think what's interesting, Jen, in your explanation of Passover being this this celebration of overcoming in Jewish history um, and the way that you've each talked about your own experiences, it felt self-identifying, right? Like it isn't about Judaism as, as a religion. And Simone, I love your story of being genetically Jewish, so to speak, and it being part of your history because my mom found out, my mom's adopted, and so when she did her 23andMe, she found that there was Ashkenazi Jew in our DNA as well, which is obviously not part of our culture and upbringing. So it's not something that we identify with. But when it comes to discrimination or people's names and even epigenetic trauma, which you know would be passed down to my mom, even though not knowing what her background is, um, and as you mentioned, we mentioned before, we you know dove deep into that recently. It it all manifests in that history of being Jewish by religion or not. And I do think that that is part of being respectful of that community as understanding how one defines it. Because as we learned earlier, you know, referring to the Jewish community as a race can be very negative consequences and it's not just a religion. So I'm wondering if there is a way to define being Jewish, so to speak. You know, it's, did I open a can of worms? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I hope you're comfy. Um, 
it is really tricky. And we've like the Jewish community has talked about this a lot. Jen and I have talked about this a lot amongst ourselves. Um, it is really, really tricky. So I am a hundred percent Ashkenazi Jew. That's what my DNA test says. It is extremely boring. I was a little disappointed. I was hoping for something a little bit more interesting, but at the same time I was like, wow, like I'm really actually Jewish, you know, you don't say. So, um, it is in our genes. So it's not just a religion. Um, I think the closest definition I've seen that makes sense is that it's an ethno religion, but then at the same time, so it is, the religion is part of it. So people can convert into Judaism, having absolutely no Jewish DNA and they are as Jewish as I am. Bam. Like they're converted. They're Jewish. You can also be born. Like I can be born hundred percent Ashkenazi Jew and not do any of the religious stuff. I do the holidays. I love the traditions. I love the culture. I even do the whole, like the whole Passover story. There's so much of it where I'm like, there's no way this happened. Like, you know, it's like, there's so much stuff in like the really, really old stories of any religion are all a little bit like, I guess you have to believe to believe it. Right. And if you don't, you don't. And I'm still Jewish, not believing in a higher power, not being spiritual about it. Um, and then at the same time, you can't convert out of Judaism. So you can choose to not observe any of it. But for example, in, you know, 1930s Europe, Jews couldn't opt out of the Holocaust. They couldn't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know I look Jewish. I know my name is Jewish, but I, I now accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm good, right? See you later. No, like that wasn't, that wasn't a thing. Like you were, you're Jewish. You can't not be Jewish. So it's not just a religion. It's not just an ethnicity. It's like a really sort of, complicated ball of yarn. That's really not it. <laughs> um, and we'll never untangle it, but it's, it's really more, we are a people, I think, which is, you know, goes back to the, you know, the, the Middle East issue is like, we're a people, we are in the diaspora and because we don't have a home anymore. And I think really it's, you know, Race makes it a little scary, but then at the same time, most of us don't, even though we are, you know, look, passes white. I absolutely experience white privilege. We'll never deny that, but I don't necessarily feel white either, knowing what my family went through for just how they were born. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really complicated. I don't know if there actually is a definition. If you had you know, 10 Jews in one room trying to define it, we'd all probably be arguing loudly with each other about it. Mm -hmm. um, so really, I think like any group of people that you're not a part of, I think really just talking to each individual and learning from them is really the key. And just sort of, you know, knowing that like any group of people, we're not a monolith. I don't speak for everyone. None of us speak for everyone. Everyone's a little different, but we all do have this sort of common um, you know, this common thing that sort of, you know, ties us together, which feels like a really sort of warm, fuzzy community thing, which I really do appreciate. Mm -hmm. I love the explanation of, um, not being able to opt out. Like that was very vivid for me in terms of, you know, the historical assassinations of different, um, persecutions, of different religions like that that was always an opt out for most people maybe except for women during the 
um, witch trials and stuff like that. Right. Right. But, um, uh, that, that was kind of just really vivid for me of like, oh, I get like, I get how that's not just a religion, you know, like, so I appreciate that, um, nuanced explanation and also understanding that there, there really is not one way to define it, I think is helpful for people to also be able to speak up for and protect those that maybe they didn't perceive as being, uh, you know, a minority that might, um, need protection because they weren't identifying that way. So I think the more that we can broaden our scope of who can come into our little protective bubble, because I like you, Simone, I'm very much um, all about uh, the protection of minorities. I'm, I'm an Enneagram 8, like I'm just rooted in justice and equality. And I, I want that for everybody. And so just the more that I can kind of expand the bubble of of who needs to come into my protective world um the better right so if if mm-hmm. any any possibility of identification is involved then whether it's self identifying whether it's genetic whether it's religious it it all could fall under this persecution and um and and trauma performed against that group, whether, you know, they identify so clearly or not. Um, I, I think we need to talk about Esther and Loretta because I asked about, um, positive connotations and, um, you know, building and recognizing, um, Jewish culture. And you guys have mentioned Yiddish. And I think one of the things that I love that you're doing right now is bringing um, fun, but also awareness through your alter egos, Esther and Loretta. Um, But as you mentioned, you're not um, experts, so to speak. There are um, wonderful educators on this topic. And I'm realizing now that my Mike Myers impersonations of the late 90s about giving you a topic and being verklempt was uh, not only cultural appropriation, but probably anti-Semitism and the harm that it caused. So um, other than Esther and Loretta and Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, can we talk about some of the other places where people might be able to educate themselves further? We sure can, honey. Um, do you need to get your rotary uh, phone back out (laughs) i got my rotary phone so now i can hear you loud and clear and i'm going to give you some information um so i'm looking for my information there's um we have a list of some educators slash influencers that we both have followed um for a while one is that i want to mention and the organizations too. So Noah Tishby is um, one woman who is Israeli, and she actually wrote a book called Israel. Um, I have really enjoyed learning from her because she, I feel like she just breaks it down and she really gets into the meat of it. And she does not mince words. She's got a very deliberate and strong personality, which I appreciate. And she, um, actually was saying today on her, um, Instagram, she said, antisemitism is anti-Jew racism. And just that first sentence, I was like, Oh, 
you know, like it just kind of hits you. So this is the kind of voice that she is in the community. Um, and she mentioned over a billion people across the world, according to polls that have been held. Um, they indicate that over a billion people hold on to anti-Semitic views. So she gives, you know, tidbits like morsels of information and statistics, things like that, but also um, is just a great advocate for Jewishness in general and how it is okay for us to be proud as a people, for us to be vocal as, um, as a group. And so I love following her. And we've also listed a few others, um, the ADL, the um, American Defamation League is great. That's a national organization. The Ninth Candle is a smaller organization, but they do a lot of education. And one thing that, and Simone can speak much more. She actually interviewed them, the founder. Um, but one thing that I really like that they do is they don't just push um, Jewish books, like Jewish topic books, as educational materials. So they won't just pull any Jewish book and say, like, here, use this as a foundation of your Jewish education if you're unfamiliar. And that's really important. And something that Simone and I actually talked about today was that a lot of what you see in books or films or TV shows, whatever it is, um, there's a very specific narrative that is either um, sort of highlighting like Jewish stereotypes um, to have, you know, to illustrate humor or to illustrate Holocaust survivors who are Jews, but who were saved by a non-Jew, um, where the hero in the story is not Jewish. Um, so I think it's important when we seek out educational resources to look for ones that um, are authentic to the Jewish people and are not just like a story being told about Jews by someone else. Mm-hmm. And their history. So that's the big thing with the Ninth Candle is and that's why they don't use the pop culture in the books to educate about the Holocaust. Their thing is um helping schools create a curriculum to for Holocaust education, because a lot of schools, most schools do a really terrible job, and that is in no way a dig at teachers at all. Both my parents are teachers. I have nothing but respect for them. It is not their fault. They have no control over it. <laughs> it's like their hands are tied, and they don't have the resources. So what they do is work with each school individually, so it's not like, you know, hello, Ninth Candle, I'd like your Holocaust program. And they like mail it out. Like they work with each school to meet the kids where they're at. So like a school in the middle of Kansas is going to have a different curriculum than a school in Manhattan. Uh, So they basically customize a program for each school, which I think is really important. And I grew up knowing a lot more about the Holocaust than most kids did. Um, and I was always really kind of disappointed and, you know, we'd learn about world war two and sometimes it wasn't even mentioned. And I was like, uh, hello. And our only education was going to see one year. We like went to see Schindler's list. And I was like, ta-da, you just learned about the Holocaust. And I was like, uh, I don't know if that really covered it. 
Um, so yeah, I think learning the actual history is really important. And, um, most of the films are really designed to like sort of shock and awe, which is, you know, serves one purpose, but it's not really educating the way actual history will educate. Um, and we also put on our list a couple rabbis who I follow who are just really, really great. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg and Rabbi Sandra Lawson are two women. Um, I know Rabbi Ruttenberg is more on Twitter than Instagram, but we'll put all of, we'll give you all of those um, resources so people can follow them because they're all really, really great. And they, they share, they educate in a really, you know, digestible way. I think it's not just mm-hmm. like going to synagogue. It's like they're teaching you, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I appreciate because I don't really, you know, learn that way either. So I definitely recommend them. I think it's a really great point, And I'm glad you called it out about the um, savior of Schindler's List being non-Jewish. And I uh, the, immediately when you said that was like, that's such a great point because it's something I also learned during um, really trying to pour into learning and unlearning for Black Lives Matter and the realization of the blind side being, you know, one of those white savior type movies. Mm -hmm. And um, I do think that Schindler's List is um, probably one of the most graphic of the the film at least resources that I've seen in terms of its portrayal of the atrocities against those in concentration camps. But I think the underlying storyline of, you know, like Simone, you said, and now you've learned, like, that's not exactly accurate and certainly not the case that, you know, we need to say that, um, there's a savior out there beyond the incredible um, overcoming of the Jewish community. There are some films that I personally um, either enjoyed about the Jewish culture or community or that I saw on lists recommending. And some of them I have seen and some of them I haven't. So I'm curious, I'm going to like walk through these with people because I do think that part of respecting um a community is learning more about them. And that can be something as simple as watching Schitt's Creek. Um, Do you guys watch Schitt's Creek and Grace and Frankie? Because my heart, they're they're my heart shows. (laughs) (laughs) I watched Schitt's Creek. Yes. And I loved it. Okay. You have you. So you're saying you don't watch Grace and Frankie. I think I watched a couple and then I sort of forgot yeah. watching it. I understand. It took me both of those shows. It took me a while to get into them. But then once I was into them, I was obsessed. Um, and so I think that's something, obviously, you're not getting educated on the history, but you can appreciate, support, and respect Jewish culture. Um, some of the other ones that were um, in the list were Broad City. Um Simone, I feel like you would like Broad City. Yeah, I've seen that. It's good. Okay. The Goldbergs? Yes. Yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the Baker and the Beauty, which I actually watched, and I don't, I did not recognize <laughs> that that was um, a part of a list. Did, have either of you seen it? Mm-mm. Okay. I haven't seen it. Wet Hot American Summer, which um, 
I actually haven't seen, but when reading the description, it was like um, Jewish summer camp in the Catskills, and it's by some of the top comedians of our generation before they were famous. Have you guys seen those? That sounds familiar. I have to look it up now because that sounds pretty good. Anything about the Catskills, I'm in. Yes, I know, I know. Um, The great thing about aging, honey, is that you can watch the same movie over and over, (laughs) and it's new every time. Right, right, right. We're going to watch those again for the first time, even if it's not. Perfect. (laughs) And we actually learned previously on this show that it's a stress reducer, that um, when you know the outcome of something, it... um, can reduce anxiety and stress. So watching the same thing that you love over and over again can actually be really healing. And so it gives me permission to fully enjoy reruns of Schitt's Creek and Golden Girls, which are like my jam. (laughs) Um, But speaking of the Catskills, Marvelous Miss Maisel was on the list. Have you guys seen Mm, that? Yeah. Love that. Yes. Um, A classic I grew up watching a bajillion times, An American Tale, which I have not watched in a very long time, and now I feel like I need to. I don't think my kids have seen it either. Um, that's like the mouse movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Five old mouse go with. Yes. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, that's my husband's favorite. Interesting. I loved <laughs> yeah. it growing up, but I like completely forgot it existed until I saw it on a list. Funny Girl, obviously. Um, School Ties. Have you guys seen that movie? I don't think oh. I have. It's another one I that I watched. I think I have in the early 1900s, yes. Yeah, <laughs> the early 1900s? I yes, watched way it, back then. Yes, I watched it a billion times in high school. I don't know why I was obsessed with that movie. I believe Matt Damon is in it, and I know Brandon Fraser is in it. Um, yeah, and that's why you were obsessed with it. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Problem solved. Problem solved. Also, I just, I really like the um, era that it's set in, like the clothing and the, you know, whatever I I'm a vintage gal what can I say and most recently I watched um Woman in Gold which was about the um family who had owned the Klimt print and was seeking its return to them um and I thought that that was a an interesting way to tell the the history have you guys seen that Mm-mm. I haven't seen that Oh, I think mm-hmm. you'd I think you'd like that. I'm obsessed with Klimt. Um, he's my favorite painter, and so I loved watching the the movie in that perspective. But obviously, as I said, one cannot learn the the history and the education from films and shows. So I love we're gonna put a link to all of the resources that you guys came up with. And maybe just as a final takeaway, um, do you each have maybe one or two action steps that people can take? walking away feeling empowered in ways that they can they can help and support a community and be a better ally to try to reduce the increase of anti-Semitism that's happening right now. Sum up. Uh, go ahead. Oh, am I first now? Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I think a really great thing to do is just to um, – educate yourself. So I think I would say the best place to start to get like a really good sort of cliffs notes of everything is the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. They have, they've done like a whole series of breaking down all the myths that the tropes come from. Um, and they even have links. Some of them have links to like two minute YouTube videos, which is great. Like I'm all about, um, I know the people who are going to take action are already taking action on other things. They're like the, the loving, caring people. 
So I know we're all busy. So like the quickest way that you can get some information, I think, is really helpful. Um, so I would follow them and I would just learn more and learn why the things that you hear are anti-Semitic that you might not have even noticed um, and learn how to call them out and sort of correct people so they know. And they will probably push back and double down, but at least you'll be doing some good. Yeah. And I think like if you have an opinion or you formulate your own opinion about something, whether it's something that you see in the media or something that you read, if you formulate an opinion and it's in a sort of polarizing topic, like around Jews or um, Jewishness or Israel or some hot topic like that, and this this extends beyond um, anti-Semitism too, but sit with that opinion for a second and also um, maybe think about why do I, why have I formed this opinion? And this, this could be maybe controversial. I don't think it is, but if I form an opinion and it's about a, a group or a sect of people that I don't belong to particularly, I might like to source a friend who is in that group and talk to them about how they feel about something so that I can uh, expand my opinion based on their potential experience. And so that, you know, before I jump to a conclusion just on my own as a person who's not living that experience, maybe connect with someone who does and see how it affects them. And I know like, um, as we've learned about, um, you know, racism and the things that are kind of embedded in our history and cultural, um, norms, we have been taught, you know, like, don't, don't burden the people who are carrying that grief. Um, but at the same time, if you have someone in your inner circle who you feel close to, it's never a terrible idea to have an intimate conversation about those kinds of topics. And I personally never feel um, upset if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I know you're Jewish and I'm not. What do you think about this? Or what's your perspective on this? I'm, I feel very happy to share. Um, for me personally, it does not feel like a burden because I'm always glad uh, if I can be a resource to someone who's trying to learn or do better or expand their mindset. So um, if you have people that you can kind of like reach out to and have a, an intimate conversation, I always think that's really nice too. I also appreciate that you gave that wording because I do have experience with people expressing opinions as facts to you, but like they don't realize that that's what they're doing because they are trying to like ask a question, but presenting it more as fact. And so mm -hmm. I, I like that you gave the example of, um, I know you're Jewish. I'd love to hear your opinion on this, or, you know, maybe the question is, can you refer me to a resource so I can learn more on this? Or, you know, if you don't mm -hmm. want to be a burden to someone, but not to say, I think this, what do you think? <laughs> right? Because yeah, then right. if it's problematic in some sort of way, you're immediately putting the person on the defensive and then it becomes a more difficult conversation. So, right. um, yeah. 
I I also think that um, some of the action steps that I would recommend, I know that there are um, Holocaust museums around the world. I know one of the resources that you guys shared was the U.S. Holocaust Museum. I happen to live in the nation's capital where um, I have been to that. It is um, impossible to not feel deeply in that museum. Mm -hmm. But I also know that there are Holocaust museums around the country, if not around the world. So I would seek out, like I recently saw in Virginia, in our capital, there is a Holocaust museum in addition to the one that is in our nation's capital, just, you know, an hour and a half away. So I'm sure that there might be one near you. And I would also say as a parent, I do feel that it is my job to educate my children with this information so that um, they can learn in a way that is digestible for them. And so where you're learning and you're finding resources and they're appropriate, definitely bringing your children. I know I've brought my children to both the Holocaust Museum and the African American History Museum, and it allowed us to have a lot of conversations to look at the history and to talk about it in an age appropriate way for them to explore that themselves and to be able to recognize then, you know, it's not a funny joke. Racism is never funny. You know, anti-Semitism is never funny. We need to, when we hear those things, instead of kind of awkwardly laughing or, you know, pretending like you didn't hear it, being able to say the words that I've taught my kids is like, I don't think that racism is funny and just leaving it at that. And so, you know, the more I think you can bring your children into this conversation, the more we can change it for the future because we're instilling in them a drive to to be advocates from a very early age. Mm-hmm. Right, and to make it not awkward for them. Yeah. So the, the problem in a lot of us as adults, if we didn't grow up in a vocally advocating family... Um, even if your family taught you, you know, it's not it's not right to make jokes about someone's race or appearance or disability or whatever. If, if you didn't grow up in a vocal family about those things, then um, and and I my parents have always instilled the good stuff, I feel like. But I didn't realize that it was my responsibility in middle school, for example, to shut down certain conversations, um, because it is awkward. And so, and because then you look like, you know, you look like you're calling out your friend, you look like you're the, you know, the, the fun police, if somebody is quote, just making a joke. So, um, that was not something that I learned to do until I was an adult and where I made it become, more normal, you know, in a social setting, if somebody said something that was obviously inappropriate to say, like, that's not nice. Why would you say that? You know, and so if we can normalize that for kids where they don't have to worry about the awkwardness or peer approval or whatever it is. And I notice now in my kids, I mean, they will call out homophobia or (laughs) whatever it is. I'm like, wow, that's bold, man. But like, awesome, because I don't think that I did that at that age. So, um, you know, teaching vocal advocacy at an early age is really fantastic. Absolutely. All right. Well, 
we are going to continue this conversation, what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view. I have a feeling it's going to get um, a little real over there. So definitely come over. <laughs> and it's also the best place to ask questions too. If you have any follow-ups, if you'd like to keep in touch with Jen, the best place to do so is predominantly paleo.com. You can also find her on Instagram at predominantly underscore paleo. Jen also runs legitbreadcompany.com. I am a big fan. You heard me talk about that before. Our family loves especially the pancake mix, but so many of the mixes. Um, And you can find Simone at zenbelly.com or at zenbelly. You can also support Simone and get many of her weekly recipes, meal plans, and shopping lists at patreon.com slash Simone Miller. I will mention we didn't talk about food today, but both of these ladies make phenomenal food and recipes, and you can check out their book, The Yiddish Kitchen, to support them and to get um, a lot of the culture and recipes that we talked about today in a grain-free format. And you can definitely have fun with Esther and Loretta, their alternate personalities, Instagram.com slash Esther and Loretta. Did I forget anything, ladies? One thing, honey. Okay. We just, we just launched the shop. You know. Yeah, that's the most important action item is to go shopping. <laughs> Go shopping, buy something for you and for them. Yeah, what's we, we what's launched... in Esther and Loretta's shop? Oh, everything. We have home goods. We have caftans. We have vintage jewelry. <laughs> we have t-shirts. We have aprons. I got my eye on that Pillows, mug. onesies for babies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hamsa everything. It it's, it's quite a shop. Yeah. <laughs> and if well, you subscribe, you get a coupon. There is yeah, no you got a coupon and a free coup- shipping, a honey. Coupon? Free shipping. Yeah. Well, there is no lack of places to find you, ladies. I want to thank you so much for lending your voices today. And we will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.